Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 273. We are now in the week of Chof of 75th anniversary of the Yorzeit of the Rebbe's father, Ablevi Yitzchak Schneerson, who is a Ben Acher Ben from the Tzemach Tzedek, who in Tovshin Dalad on the 20th of Av passed away. One of the unique things about this day is uh, obviously being the Rebbe's father, so it's relevant to us personally through the Rebbe, but the Rebbe's great uh, pain and aggravation over not being able to honor his father for so many years. The Rebbe, as we know, left Russia, left the former Soviet Union, I should say, in Tofresh Peites, Tofresh Peiches, I'm sorry, Tofresh Peiches, right after Simchas Teda with the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe would get married the next year and his parents couldn't even come to the wedding. They made a second wedding, a simultaneous, I should say, not a second, a simultaneous celebration where they were. But essentially, if you think, we don't know exactly when the last time was the Rebbe saw his father, but even if it was literally the last time, just days before or weeks or months before Tafresh Peiches when he left that country, probably wasn't even then, it was earlier. So we're talking about by the time the, the, the Rebbe's father passed away, you're talking about um, 12, 16 years. It was probably more than that. And all those years, the Rebbe did not have the opportunity, as the Rebbe, you could see, expressed himself this way, that anybody who did anything for his father, any type of shimush, any type of help, any type of support, they basically bought themselves to Elam Haba. And the Rebbe once said to someone and expressed himself, not I could repay, and not I want to repay the debt to anyone that helped, that was an individual that helped the Rebbe's father. Which itself is a tremendous lesson in life about honoring parents. And we know, of course, when the Rebbe's Chana, of Levi Yitzchok's wife, came out from uh, that country. So the Rebbe in Tov Shinzayin in 1947 went to France and spent several months to greet his mother and prepare her and come back with her to the United States. And every day, and ever since then, every day would visit his mother. Literally visit and go to her home, uh, which I'm not sure where, where it was in the beginning, but later on President Street and Kingston Avenue. So you see this enormous amount of respect, even among a Rebbe, with so much busy time, they could understand, parents could understand that, was an unbelievable role model in Menschlichkeit, and of course fulfillment of this great mitzvah. Now, the baby Yitzchak, of course, is known as a Mukubal, and we have only a small percentage of the manuscripts that remained. They say there are a lot, lot more. And when they began to come out from that country in the early 60s, uh, I, think, I believe it was a little earlier when people started smuggling them out, but in the early 60s when they came here to the United States, the Rebbe immediately began preparing them for publication. Many of them were written because he was in exile, and away from anything from Sfarim and from being able to have ink, many of them written in different color inks that his, the Rebbe Sanchana prepared from reeds and from other materials, and was written on the edges on the gloss of a zohar that he had, and a lot of it from memory based on commentaries that he referred to, but you also see his enormous bikiyas, especially in the Sifri Kabbalah. And uh, the Rebbe once began to be published, first it was published the, the Rav Levi Yitzchok's Rishimah Santanya, then later on, uh, on Geras HaTshuva, the Rebbe began to explain the 
Rabbi Levi Yitzchok's commentary on Egeres HaTshuva, and then later on Zoyar. And over the years, all the years, every Shabbos, the Rebbe would designate a certain period of time that he would actually take a piece from Rabbi Levi Yitzchok and either explain it, or explain its connection to Chassidus, or its application of Avedis Hashem, which the Rebbe always would say that his father relied that that we would figure out on our own. So if you can sum up his um, the scope of his work and his contribution, it maybe comes down to a letter that the Rabbi wrote to the Rebbe, where he writes, because we have part of that is also correspondence between the Rebbe and Rabbi his father, where he writes to the Rebbe, always connect any chiddush in Teda, anything you write about Teda, connect it with its foundations in Kabbalah. Because when it's grounded in the foundations of the Kabbalah, I'm paraphrasing, it has that kafter v'ferach. Kafter v'ferach is an expression from the Mishkan of uh, the Meneda, but it means a perfection, a certain roundedness, a certain whole completion that you're finishing the circle. You have the beautiful, eloquent picture of an idea when it's grounded in Kabbalistic, uh, Kabbalistic sources. And you can say that's exactly what Ablevi Yitzchak did. He himself, obviously, as I heard he once said, that everything in, the, in, this, in everything he writes, everything he says, he was a, also an eloquent speaker and teacher and all his drushes are all based on the Kutateta. But it's the, the language that he uses is just through the lens of Kabbalah, grounding things in Kabbalistic references and Kabbalistic numbers and breaking it down in a style that the Rebbe very often emulated, which was the diuk, the emphasis and connection to the right, to the author of whatever particular piece in the Talmud or Gemara or Zoya is, the numbers, that, of how, the, how the different structured ideas were, let's say something was described in three different ways, Rabbi would explain what's the difference between illuminated and sparkling and bright, for instance. Or, the, or other Lashenus in Zoya, language in Zoya and other places in Teira. And this fascinating way created this very eloquent, almost poetic way of understanding things, again, through the lens of Kabbalah with relying, as the Rebbe said, that we would, we would extract from it its connection to the Maimonim of Chassidus and its di- direction and hera and directive and lessons in our personal life and our personal Aveda and work. So what do we do in a day like this on Chafov? So the Rebbe himself wrote in, in more than once, but he wrote in a very famous, now maybe being famous, uh, footnote of a letter that it's his great, great schus and great achrais, his great merit and great responsibility to encourage everybody on this day of Chafov to study something from his father's teda and teachings. As the Rebbe himself, as I said, did every week throughout the Nesias of the Rebbe. And those later years, starting approximately in the late 60s and then continuing on the 70s and 80s. So, of course, that's the first directive. The second one is understanding the connection between Shmosa Daraisa and Nigel Daraisa, the soul and body of Teda. And Ablev Yitzchok in the spirit, of course, of Chassidus, coming straight from Ben Achar Ben, as I said, from the Samach Tzedek, and combining it with the way that Rebbe explains it all. So it just adds a dimension of appreciating that you need to have the soul of Teda together with the body of Teda. And finally, I would say the Mesiris Nefesh of Levi Yitzchok. He was Mesir Nefesh, he was a Rav in Yekaterinoslav, and then he was arrested, of course, for this counter, uh, counter-revolutionary activity, which means basically spreading Yiddishkeit, tortured, punished, and oppressed, and then sent off to exile, and where he literally hungered and suffered greatly. Mesiris Nefesh, as the Rebbe would talk often in the Fabrengas of Chafov, and sometimes Vav Tishrei, which is the Yartzeit of the Rebbe Tzachana, 
in Tavshin Chofei, uh, the Mesiris Nefesh that he had for Yiddishkeit, for every detail in Judaism. So being the Rebbe's father, these are lessons that we can derive and Chassidus applied, how we too today, in times of much more plenty, and without having that, uh, God, thank God, sodas and challenges and uh, afflictions that he dealt with, being able to um, have Mesiris Nefesh, which is Mesiris Harotz, complete commitment to Yiddishkeit with the fullest passion and the fullest commitment. But add one more thing, and it's fascinating, the Shima, the notes he writes, which is printed in the introduction to his notes on Tanya, is he has a Rishima to the extent you see how he learned Hashgacha Pratis, that he describes even his oppression, even his days and months in prison and the different prisons he was in, all connected to his life and to his name, Levi Yitzchak, which both indicate Gvura. Levi is Gvura and Yitzchak is Gvura, meaning dealing with Gvuras of life, which is the, the severities of the difficulties and challenges of life. And it's a fascinating Rishima because he literally takes everything negative about his life and instead of just complaining, looks at it as some type of divine force that he had to endure, obviously with pain, but sees the divine even in those darkest uh, elements of his experiences, which of course is a lesson to each of us, whatever we're dealing with. And sometimes, unfortunately, we deal with setbacks or moments of darkness and um, sadness and pain and so on that we can derive from that how even that becomes part of the divine plan and in some ways a divine revelation, even if the revelation sometimes appears at the moment as being bleak. And that finally there will be, the end result will be the growth. And look at the Rebbe. The Rebbe is a a child, a son of Rabbi Yitzchak, his oldest son, the oldest of three sons, of three boys. And the Rebbe becoming the Rebbe in 1955 and then... And then leading the Nesiyas, the Rebbe is a direct product of Rabbi Yitzchak and his Mesiris Nefesh. The Rebbe in a very powerful Sikh in Yud Alef Nisan, Tov Shalamites, I should add, it's a very, the Rebbe speaks very personally. He's asked, he, the Rebbe says there in the Sikh that I was asked whether I mind that people criticize me. The Rebbe, I think, was talking about his uh, strong position on the Shtochim of not giving up land for Yitzchak and Yitzchak for peace. So that, and of course the Rebbe was criticized the Rebbe says I was asked whether I mind being criticized and the Rebbe responds to say I don't mind I cannot say but to say I mind to the point that I will not speak about this I also cannot say and the Rebbe continued where did I learn this uh, so called uh, having this, this courage this uh, strength he says it comes back from my childhood it's being the oldest son of the chief rabbi the Rebbe says Rav Roshi v'miruf how it's called today, of Yekaterinoslav, so many people would come see my father, and being the oldest son, he would send me certain individuals that he didn't want to deal with, or were people coming from uh, places that were more critical, and so on. And uh, being that I also knew languages, I was able to speak to different people from different languages. The Rebbe goes on and says, that's also one of the things people criticize me for, knowing languages. He says, Ich nicht in them. I, don't, I don't dwell in it, uh, yet I also won't deny it like other people who deny things, and it wouldn't help anyway because it's, it's, it's public knowledge. And being that people would come to me often with their own negative attitudes, I heard many much critique already back then, and that's where I developed, so to speak, the immunity of not being affected by crit, 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 critique. The Rebbe goes on and says, interestingly, so there's a few choices, he says, not to, not to speak, because there's critics, is altogether not even a consideration. If I feel it's important to speak, I'll speak. And the Rebbe has these words, Nishtav dem Not for this was I educated and brought up 
to be quiet when I hear that something is going to hurt or harm Eden. So you see in a short expression, meaning he grew up in a home with Rabbi Yitzchak and a mother like Rabbi Tzachana, that home that taught him that you stand up and you don't cower in fear and you don't retreat and you stand with pride and strength even when it's a challenging situation. It's interesting to listen to just to see the way that Rebbe expresses how his education impacted him. Of course, there's other references as well, but that's a very powerful one. So with that, we have tremendous lessons of the 75th anniversary of Chafov, including, of course, this take from Mesiris Nefesh and, and uh, courage necessary in our times as well to speak up when necessary in a diplomatic way, in a beautiful way, in B'dar and so on, but not to retreat and not to be fear, fearful of what others will think when we have to stand up for something that is right and, uh, and positive and godly. Okay, with that, let's also speak about a moment about Parshas Ekev, which is this coming Shabbos this week, and as well as Shabbos Mavarchim El. So Ekev, Ekev has many different meanings. Ekev also comes from the word, as Chassidus brings, Ekev from the word Ekev, the heel, referring to Ikvesed the Meshichet end of days, which is called the heel of Mashiach, meaning right before Mashiach's coming. And that Ekev, like the Ekev in the human body, this, the, the heel, on one hand it's called, in Ovez Drab Nosin in Medrash, it's called Malach Adam. It's the angel of death in the human being. Why? Because the human being encompasses everything. We have hills and mountains. Elam Katan Adam. The human being is a small microcosm. It's a microcosm of all of existence. So the heel, which is so uh, almost... Um, a heel which is so uh, able to take the blunt blows of walking, so the heel has the least amount of um, uh, sensitive nerves. So it's called the Malach Shabadam, being that it's so uh, it's one of the extremities and not as sensitive as other parts of the body. The life force there is more concealed. And yet, within that Malach Shabadam, within that negative, within the heel, which sounds so the lowest level, we find the great Mesidus Nefesh, as Chassidus says, that when you want to put your, when you want to test the waters, and want to, before you go into a bath, you put your heel in first to test, see how hot it is. You don't put your head in first. The head is far more sensitive, or other parts of the body. So the heel has the ability of Mesidus Nefesh to go into hot water and be the first to carry us. And what does the heel do? It does carry. It carries the entire body, including the head. We dance with our heels and our souls, our legs, our, t- our feet, and they carry the teda. So the heel has that paradoxical element. On one end, it's the end of the situation, the one with the least amount of giluim and revelation, and yet, dafka there, specifically there, you have the greatest power of Mr. Snefesh of taking the first leap of that type of attitude. Chassidus explains, because the heel does not have intelligence in it, so the giluim, the revelations, don't block the ability for doing what has to be done, sometimes thinking too much and calculating and being too intellectual and, car- and uh, cerebral about things blocks us from actually doing things. So the heel also indicates action, the need for action and not always sitting and pontificating or ruminating, but going right for it to the heel and leading the way by marching forward. As the Rebbe would often speak of the Fabrengas about taluchas, a talucha going to other shuls. So we talk about the power of the heel which lifts the whole body and carries it and walks to other communities to bring Yiddishkeit there with the same emphasis on this uh, power of the heel to lift everything up. Shabbos, Mavarchem Elul, 
El is the heel of the month, of the year. It's the end, the last month of the year. The Chedesh HaCheshben, the month of accountability. We've taken accounting of everything that went, went past, that happened in the past year. But it's also the Chedesh HaChone. In the heel also lies the whole preparation for the future, for the year to come. It prepares us for the year to come, the month of compassion, the month when Moshe Rabbeinu was up on the mountain for the third time and eliciting from Hashem, from God, in this last month of the year, eliciting from God the 13 attributes of divine compassion, which then would go on to ultimately lead to Rosh Hashanah and then to Yom Kippur when, when the, he returned from the mountain with full forgiveness, Hashem said, I've forgiven as you've asked for the holiest day of the year, all born from the month of El, which on Shechidosh El begins the 40-day journey, and then concluding Shechidosh El to Yom Kippur, which is the 10th day of Tishrei, 30 plus 10, 40, the 40th day. So there you have lessons galore about how to apply these ideas to our lives, where we are now, that even when we're at the end of a process, even when we're at the bottom of something, there lies an enormous amount of strength to grow and to lead and to hold up and lift the entire building, the entire structure. We'll be talking, of course, more about El as the month progresses, but this suffice for now. I'll do a little cross-referencing because these topics have been discussed. This is already the sixth year of My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 273. So cross-referencing to episode 78, 128, 128, 174, and 223. All these archives can be found at chassidusapply.com, a new site which we have created, dedicated exclusively and specifically to that name, Applying Chassidus to Life. Everything there is archived. It's also you can searchable via keywords or via the topics by going to the timestamps of each video, the YouTube version on the desktop or laptop. And you can actually go straight to the point you're looking for. You can download, download these archives on podcast on all different social media platforms, and please do so. They are free of charge, but we ask you to try to make a, a donation to help us support this program and the growth of it and the development of it into many different areas. You'll also find there the forum where you can submit any anonymous, completely anonymous question that will be addressed on this program. This program is essentially responding to questions from people like yourselves. We have many, many questions. Some of them are backed up, but I will cover them all, and we continue to move along. And finally, the essays, those powerful essays written over the past five years by literally thousands of individuals from all over the world, essays that apply this to a contemporary issue or challenge, they're posted there. And the new essays of this past year, we post every week the three essays that I review at the end of each of these programs. And with that, let us go now to some questions. Applying Torah. Is there a lesson from every single word in Torah? If Torah is a lesson for us, how come, if, if Torah is a lesson for us, a lesson in life, why is it that there is not an application for our service to Hashem from every single word in Torah? For example, why don't we find any lessons from all, from all the times in the Torah that it says, etc.? So I know there are many Maimorim and Medrashim and numerous verses, but what about the many other verses that don't have commentary? Okay, so first of all, interestingly, there's commentary precisely on that verse as well. In Ayim Beis, I am trying to remember, in the end of volume one, around two-thirds through volume one, I wish I could look it up on, 
Next time I'll try to give you the page. But you should be able to find it with the index. There's actually a f- complete, beautiful explanation of every word. Vayedaber, Hashem, Elmeisha, Lamer, Daber, Elbnei Yisrael. Now there are obviously places we don't have an interpretation of every word or verse. But we can extrapolate from the interpretations given elsewhere. So first rule. Every single word, not just word, every single letter, every ser- single nuance, every single movement, tenuah. Even Tam, the Trap, the Nigan of the Apostle. Every letter is filled and saturated with interpretations upon interpretations. Or else it wouldn't have been put in the Teda. The Teda only has things that are necessary for us to know for our being a blueprint for our lives. And that's why you'll find entire chapters of, let's say, Avram Avinu's history. We only hear how he's born. Until age 75, the Teda Shabiksav, the written Teda doesn't say much. So if it was a history book to give us information, it doesn't seem adequate. And then think of this, consider this. The first book of Genesis, Abreshis, covers around 2,000 years from the beginning of creation to when the Jews, the children of Yaakov, pass away in Mitzrayim. The second book, Exodus, begins with the exile in Egypt. And then where does it conclude? 40 years later, when they come to the what, to east bank of the River Jordan after they're leaving, uh, leaving Mitzrayim and 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 then building the Mishkan. So one book covers 2,000 years. Another four books cover 40 years. Doesn't sound proportionate. But when you know Teda is then you know it's not about filling in the dates. It's not about an equal coverage of different periods. It's only what's necessary for our living this world, a blueprint for our lives. As, and as such, every letter and every iota, every nuance is filled with messages. Some of them are, many of them are specifically explained, Chassidus and other places. And some we have to derive, and you derive from one place, you can take it and apply it to another, another place. And the same thing, of course, with Teresh al Pet. So that's the answer. Sometimes we have to put some more work. Everything is there. If you turn the page, turn the page, and you'll find the answers and directives to our lives. Next question. How can you say that you're not getting political when the mere fact that you're addressing a political issue makes it political? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have a comment that applies in general to your podcast, but especially when you apply this to current events. At such times, you typically say you're not going into politics of the situation. However, even by saying one sentence that relates to the politics, you're already getting into politics. For example, when you did the podcast after the Pittsburgh massacre, you said something to the effect that you were not going to get into the politics of what, a politics of what happened, but then added that, of course, such things as security are necessary, but such solutions will not be the focus of your talk. I am paraphrasing and did not review the episode to exactly capture your words. Sorry about that. I am on my lunch break. Anyway, even by mentioning security, you were getting into politics because Trump's big thing, as well as the people who work for Trump, always say that the way to fight terrorism is more guns and security and walls. His top education person thinks that the answer to shootings in schools is to have armed armed teachers. On the other hand, many people think that the rise in hate hate crimes is a result of the encouragement that haters have received from the present administration, along with gun laws that do not require sufficient background checks, etc. My point is not to draw you into politics, but only to say that if you're going to avoid the politics of the issue you're discussing, you have to not say anything political at all. Thank you for your podcasts. I listen every week. Okay, thank you for your comment. However, however, 
Yes, you're pulling it into politics, and I absolutely was not. I was talking about an event that affects us all, and Pittsburgh Massacre is not a political event. Unfortunately, it's a tragedy that we all would have wished didn't happen. The politics of Trump or the anti-Trumpians, to me, is irrelevant. Gun control, uh, getting, uh, uh, arming teachers or not arming teachers, or, um, uh, and other things, or blaming Trump for encouraging the haters, frankly, is all politics. And it can be argued, and much can be said, that has nothing to do with the Trump shootings happened before him, and unfortunately, uh, hopefully, they will not happen again. But the way you write, I can tell, clearly tell where you stand. If anyone listens to what I said, I do not think you'll be able to tell where I stand on this matter because I did not go into the issue. Things that could be done short-term, by all means. But this is exactly the problem. A massacre happens, and what happens next is the accusation of the president that he's the one that caused it, or his words caused it. And then taking whatever issue he brings up, taking other issues. Why shouldn't we all be, be, be on the same page that security is a good idea? And yes, having armed guards is a good idea. And yes, um, not having hateful rhetoric is a good idea. And all ends, from left and right. If I heard that, then everybody's talking apolitically. But as soon as you take it into what you're doing now, that's exactly what I'd never do. So talking about a topic and mentioning gun control as a short-term solution, but saying that's not the main solution. The main solution is educating our children that there's a God and that there's an eye that, hears, an eye that sees and an ear that hears is, is not political. It's actually addressing an issue in a transcending political way. And that I in, in, intend to do and will continue to do. However, they, says, they say, call up pesel b'mumi pesel. If one looks with political eyes, then they see everywhere politics. Maybe step back and say, you know what, let's not talk about Trump. Let's say this was four years ago, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 20 years from now. How do we address an issue? Stop take, let's take the names out of it, political figures out of it, and not try to use every situation for either a pro or anti-Trump agenda. And that's exactly what the Torah teaches us to do, to transcend these details and to talk about the actual issues, which is what I've done and I continue to do. And now talking about an issue does not make, even if it's a, even others are making it political, that does not make everyone that's speaking about it political. That's the main thing I want to emphasize. Okay, next question, which is a topic that comes up again and again, which is so central to Chassidus, davening prayer. Please shed some light on how we are to approach davening in our current modern world. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was wondering if you could shed some light on how we are to approach davening in our current modern world. It seems the original mitzvah was to praise Hashem, God, and ask requests of Hashem at any time and place during the day. Men and women of all ages were able to fulfill this mitzvah. Then later on in history, the Anshei Knesset Sagdela, the great assembly, the men of the great assembly, this is approximately right before the destruction of the temple of that period in time, a little earlier than that, the beginning of Pirkeiovus, after we speak about the Skenim, they gave it over to the Nevi'im, gave it to the Skenim, then comes Anshik Sagdela. They began to formulate the Siddur, the formal prayer book which we have, the formal prayers that we pray. This was a response, this was a response to people who were starting to lose the chush, the chush, the touch, so to speak, and could not find the correct words with which to express themselves to Hashem, as well as having the appropriate kavana. Since that time, davening, prayer, has been strongly associated with using a siddur and praying with a tzibur, 
that's a quorum, a, a community, a group, a minion, or minion. Sibur is a larger group, and minion is ten people. It seems that praying without a minion is viewed as inferior, as the tefillahs of the tzibur are more desirable and accepted by Hashem when praying among multitudes. Yes. The advent, the advent of chassidus reintroduced the concept of davening at length and in solitude, and my own experience in yeshiva was that this is the preferred mode of prayer, of davening, even at the expense of tefillah with tzibur, tefillah with a, with a group, with a, with a community, admittedly with a congregation. Admittedly, this is, a lofty, this is a lofty level to attain, and only a handful of bochrim and rabbonim ashpim and a select few balabatim are able to truly pray in this manner. For the rest of us, it seems, davening has become at best a routine chore of reciting Hebrew words hurried, hurriedly and at worst a balagan. There is a constant chatter during davening, even during Shema and Shema Nesra, and there appears to be a strong disconnect between what we now call davening and actually connecting with Hashem. I believe the reason for this is that we feel restrict, restricted by the Siddur, and we once again do not know how to express ourselves. Maybe the Siddur and structure of Tefillah B'Tzibur helped in earlier generations, but today it seems to be a hindrance. How can we truly express ourselves when the prayers are in Hebrew, which we don't understand, and there are times when we cannot talk, etc.? I think the time has come to revert back to the original system of Tefillah, where we take some time each day to thank Hashem, praise Hashem, and ask for our personal requests. What do you think? Best regards. Well, I agree with half of what you said, and I disagree with the other half. Um, I think you can guess which half. I agree that prayer was always meant to have kavana, tefillah b'le kavana is keguf b'le neshama. It's like a body without a soul, like a corpse. It was always important kavana, even before chassidus. The Anche Knesset God forbid to say, but they created was a downgrade. They actually, what did was create something more formal that make it easier for people to daven properly. And we always need to have the structure, but the, kavon, but the intention was not to take away the importance of the soul and the kavon. It was only meant to help in that regard. Chassidus definitely re-emphasizes and brought back to the surface the importance of Aveda Shebelev Zuhid Tefillah, which is expression of the Gemara, I should add. The service of the heart is prayer, and how to do it properly. And prayer is a central component in Chassidus. Not just learning, but applying it to your heart, having an emotional relationship with God, developing those emotions and feelings. And that's what davening is, as Chassidus explains at length. All that is great. But to suggest to go back, no, that's not correct and absolutely wrong. What do you need more than the Rebbe himself? Always with a Siddur. Why would using musical notes, using this example, be a contradiction to playing music in the most powerful, passionate way? In a city of the formal prayers, of course there's the trap of lip service and just mechanical and doing it rushed and so on and so forth. That's why we need to teach. But that would be like someone saying, let's eliminate the mechanical, technical mitzvahs and just focus on the heart and soul and do things spiritually. We live in a physical world that needs to be grounded in physical words and physical actions. Which is the movement of the lips is maise action. That's what prayer is about. And it's meant to be, just like it's important to say, I love you and not just say that I have the feelings and I don't have to express it. So both are correct and both are necessary. Now, how to pray properly? Take it step by step. I've talked about this many times. Prayer doesn't mean davening. If you want to daven properly, choose a a section of the prayer and focus on it, and then grow from there. Those that daven many hours can maybe focus on a lot more than that. 
the advantage of a minion and a tzibur was not meant to undermine the personal connection. It was a synergy that comes with the community that gives strength to each individual. But even when you pray with a minion, you're still supposed to be praying like you're speaking to God and you whisper and you don't speak out loud. Certain things are said out loud, but most of the davening is between you and Hashem. So personalizing, absolutely. But I do not recommend and, and, dis, and reject your suggestion of trying to change things from the way it's become accepted, not just accepted by all Gdeli Yisrael, the way Jews do things. But at the same time, absolutely, personalize it and add the Kavana. I want to refer to episodes 228 where I actually spoke, spoke about this idea of prayer in context of Elul, when it's a time when we increase in prayer. And episode 258, and there... I reference many, many other episodes. I don't want to review them all. I'll just go there. Vishan, Visham, Nisman. There, the others are referenced to other times I've spoken about prayer. Next question. What can we do to increase security in Crown Heights? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I would like to talk to you today about the recent spike in anti-Semitic attacks in Crown Heights. I would like to share with you and your listeners some ideas we can do in response, to, in response to these attacks. I'm speaking on a spiritual level. Firstly, I don't think it would be out of line if a kinder's gathering of Tehidat, Tefillah, and Zdokah was organized. Secondly, I was thinking that perhaps not all Anash know, Anash is the Chabad community, about the Rebbe's directives that one should check their mezuzahs and Tefillin once a year, every 12 months. As is known that the mezuzah has a special power for Shmira safety, protection. As Hashem's name on the mezuzah, Shin Dalad Yud, is an abbreviation for the word Shemer Dalsis Yisrael, the one who protects the doors of Israel, that God watches over the doors, homes of the Jewish people. Of course, this is in addition to the community council doing their job and rallying the police department to do their job with increased patrol in the community, etc. Psudas Tevis, Mashiach now. So I'm all with you. Security absolutely is not just physical security, which also is included but security, and not just in Crown Heights. How much did the Rebbe speak about security in Yisrael, in all Jewish communities, and for that matter, in all, in all communities all around the world? So I second everything you're saying, and it's good to bring it up, and that's why I'm reading it. And the Ebersa should help. We should not have the need of anti-Semitic attacks or other attacks to remind us. But yes, doing everything possible to bring God's presence into our homes, into our personal lives, into our communities, is a critical component in addition to all the other measures we take, which is uh, obviously uh, locking your doors and uh, having a stronger police presence, but we know it goes hand in hand. So thank you for that. Does Judaism have a place for skeptics? I have a habit or nature to double think things. I was told by people that skepticism is a trait of Amalek. Or things like Suffolk, Begimatri, Amolik, meaning the fact that I doubt things and I don't take everything at face value is a negative trait that will stunt my growth in Yiddishkeit. Personally, I feel this approach sounds very similar to other religions where you are not allowed to ask questions. My question is, is using our seichel, our intelligence, and double thinking a neutral or an, is, and, and double thinking, is that a neutral or a negative habit? If it's neutral, how can it be channeled? I was, wondering what your, I was wondering what your opinion is. If you can address this, it would be greatly appreciated. So yes, firstly, I addressed this topic to some extent in episodes 113 and 229. The answer is there's two types of skepticism. There's healthy and unhealthy skepticism. 
Unhealthy skepticism is someone who asks questions just to justify their position. They have a locked-in position, pre- they have preconceived notions, they're invested for whatever reason in a certain the desired outcome, and then they find reasons to explain it. And if you challenge them, they always have an excuse. And, if you, and, and their skepticism of any other approach is just a smokescreen. It's not true skepticism in the sense where they're really open to hear another argument. And that's why you see people like that. As much as you say, you get nowhere. Healthy skepticism, on the other hand, is a person who's open to hear an answer they may not be comfortable with. And they're open to change their position. And intelligent, open inquiry, free inquiry, means that you don't have a preconceived notion or a bias or a prejudice or a stereotype that's shaping your thinking. You're thinking very open-mindedly. You're listening to every angle. You, yes, you challenge. The whole Talmud is based on challenging. Every Tana, every Amida challenges each other. That's the way of learning, but it's healthy skepticism, meaning they're looking for the truth and not looking to be right. And when you're looking for the truth, part of the process is God gave us a mind. A mind is meant to ask questions. A meant to explore, meant to challenge, with the objective of finding what is the clearest and the most crystal clear idea. That's the goal. So absolutely, Yiddishkeit is a room for skepticism. That's why Nasa Venishma. Nasa states, I accept even without understanding. But then there's a requirement also for nishma, which means not just to listen, but to understand and to use your great mind and to probe and to learn and to study and to challenge and to argue and counter arguments until you get to the most crystal clear idea. And that's the answer. So we need to find, obviously, the proper balance and we need to also look and check ourselves to make sure we're doing it for the right reasons. Okay. Next question. What should be the public role of Jewish women, and where do we draw the line? With the mic drop event, and Rabbanim coming out against women joining in, I'm trying to understand the Rebbe's position on the role of women. Unlike other Orthodox groups, we publish and print pictures of women in the Sheikh Chabad newsletter and other outlets and publications. And my understanding is that the Rebbe wanted Shluches to take leadership public in hidden Roles in the Chabad house. Unhidden roles in the Chabad house. I guess my question is where, where do we draw the line between embracing women in a public role? We don't ban pictures, shluch is speaking in public, etc. And something not tznius. So this is a topic I've spoken about extensively and I want to give you all the references, as many as I was able to uh, uncover. Episodes 11, 47 and 48. 65, 67, 106, 107, 146, 147, 239 through 241, 250, 251, and 253. So if you want a more comprehensive response with different angles, I refer you to all those episodes. As I said, they're all in our archives at chassidahsupply.com. Briefly, because we have spoken about this, yes, it is a balance in between two different, appro- two different elements, now, when we talk about women being in a public position like a shlucha, it never was to compromise tzniyas, obviously. It has to be done with the right discreet ways that ever always emphasizes. Women's leadership is necessary, but there's a way women lead, and the unique way that they lead. So there's no question about compromising it. That's not even a, a, it's not even a discussion. I mean, it's not a discussion. What I mean to say is, of course, it's a discussion because it comes up where do you, cross, where do you draw the line. So there you need to have mashpim and rabbonim that help 
determine these things. We have directives from the Rebbe about this and how things should be uh, conducted, events, public speaking, and what kind of circumstances, what type of audiences, and that needs to be discussed in detail. I mean, there is no black and white answer to that. It's case by case. You, for example, have in 770 an event for Neshei Bnei Chabad. So you have women speaking, you have men speaking for them. That's the way the Rebbe said. The Rebbe himself spoke for them. But then if you have all men events, should a woman be speaking there in 770? Most likely not. But then there are events that happen in Chabad houses where you have men and women, and the women are being honored together with their husbands. So I'm not going to go into the detail because each case is case by case. But yes, there, is, there are areas, gray areas, where we need to find the proper balance. But the most important thing is we're not talking about compromising. We're talking about doing what is right, what is asked of us, and and based on the Rebbe. So there is absolutely a, a role of a woman in a leadership position, but in the right sneezdik and halachadik away. And, uh, and regarding the same thing, regarding speaking, regarding publicizing, and so on and so forth. So um, I think if we don't use extremism, and we don't use any zealotry, we use to try to find what it says in halacha, what it says in chassidus and teda, we'll find the proper medium, the proper balance. Okay. And as I said, more I discussed in previous episodes, the ones I referred to. Let's do some follow-up. I left some time for follow-up so we don't have to be rushed. So first thing is, let me deal with something I spoke about in the chassidus question last week, which was about the four types of capital punishment. Skila Srefa, Herig, and Chenek. And the Chassidus explanation of all these four, as I discussed. Now, I mentioned that Derechaim is a place I found all four discussed. That doesn't mean that there aren't other places where it's discussed. I'm going to give some more sources. That's what I'm focusing on now, where the Derechaim is probably rooted in. But again, all four I only found in Derechaim. The first two are discussed the following places in Teda Eir from the Alta Rebbe 31a, Lukuta Teda Shuva Yisrael, it's a Chaba Shuva Maimer 64d, Ulekachtem Lachem and Biyem Ashmini Atzeres to my modern from the Rebbe Rashab Tofresh Samachay discusses more at length. And as I said, there the focus is mostly the first or the first second of the four. Uh, going even further back, beyond before Chassidus, you have the Sidra Arizal on Krishna Shalamita. As I mentioned, the four Mrs. Mrs. Bezna mentioned in Krishna Shalamita when we say, uh, when, we speak, when we mentioned, for the sins I did that would have been responsible, the punishment would have been Skila, which is a Begam in the letter Yud, and then Srefa, the Begam in the letter He, and then Herig and Chenek, the Vov and the He. And we discussed what those all mean, as he says there. It's a pagam in Krishman, a pagam in Netfilin, uh, a pagam in Mezuzah, and a pagam in Tefillah, Davening, that these four are, should be repaired. And Chassidus explains how they're repaired. But the idea is already agree, exists already in Kabbalah and Sidra Rizal and Krishma Shalamita, especially in the Kale Yankov version. Sidra Rizal, there are several versions. And one of them is called Kale Yankov. Remember that Rizal himself did not write. So his Talmidim took and gleaned from his teachings, from his taught, taught, teachings, and turned it into a commentary on the Siddha. So there are several versions. Kael Yankiv talks pretty extensively about it, more Kabbalistically. But it's consistent with the beer, the beer explanations of Siddhas. Just to round out the topic. We also spoke about education, educating about healthy intimacy. This was last week's episode as well. We received a few um, 
comments. I'm going to read a few uh, follow-ups. The question there, and we discussed it there, and I'm not, obviously not going to review what was said there. You can look it up in last week's episode. The question was, are we properly educating newlyweds in the difference between healthy and unhealthy intimacy? So I received actually quite a number of responses. I'll just mention a few. Number one. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your weekly My Life Chassidus Supply broadcasts. These are invaluable for people like me, a bocher who was born after Gimel Tammuz, who never got to meet the Rebbe personally. I have a follow-up question regarding compatibility in regards to intimacy. I'm dating now and have heard politically conservative, but not from podcasters, talk about intimate compatibility. Although generally espousing the view of not having premarital relations, they say it's important to ensure that spouses are compatible. And don't discover after marriage that they don't fit in this way. As a bochra, I've never seen in any sort of romantic relationship with the opposite gender, let alone one with physical contact. So all this is somewhat theoretical. I've never been in any sort of romantic relationship, let alone with one with physical contact. So all this is somewhat theoretical for me at this point. However, as I'm now dating, I've been wondering what this means for me in future relationships in a future relationship. Specifically, when I heard you read the very poignant submission from someone, presumably a woman, regarding compatibility in the private setting with the husband and wife, having different views on what should be considered normal, I agree with you that our generation needs specific instructions in the matter. How would I know what my future wife thinks and feels about a physical relationship prior to our getting married? Is this something we should discuss when dating? Is this sneeze? Is that sneeze? Since we both will both be people who haven't had any such previous relationships, and the only knowledge I, we, will have is from films, the internet, etc. How do we really even know what is healthy? Is it something I should be able to sense from the girl I date, whether she's an open or closed person? I guess I would say about myself that I have waited all these years, have not had any relationship, and would like to marry someone who's not shy about having a healthy relationship with her spouse. It would kill me to marry someone who's less physical and not really interested in or excited by a healthy, fulfilling, intimate relationship. Sorry for dragging on so long, but I guess as a bocher pre-chasen classes, I'm a bit clueless. But do know that I'd be devastated to marry someone incompatible in this way. Having spoken to friends, I know I'm not the only one confused and concerned about this. And from your letter, from the letter you read, it seems to be a problem. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Okay, thank you for your candidness. I'll try to be equally candid. In in addition to what I said in the last week's program, I just want to re-emphasize something I did point out. The most important thing to remember in a healthy relationship, of course, according to Judaism and Tehid is that it's a holistic one. It includes an entire gamut, an entire spectrum of life. Intimacy is a vital component, obviously, but it's not just physical intimacy. It's the communication it's even how you eat lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, how you interact, how you walk in the street, how you generally interact about work and about other matters. It's a full-blown relationship. Whenever it becomes compartmentalized or fragmented, where you're focusing on one thing only, whatever it may be, whether it's money only or it's just how the house is going to look only, often that creates problems because the balance is lost. You have to look at the entire picture where the focus is only on intimacy and not on anything else, it can become an obsession. That's the nature of intimacy. And it can ultimately undermine a relationship. So though it's vital and important, but unfortunately the secular world has become obsessed 
with the technique around intimacy. And it's all about that and not about commitment necessarily. And that has spilled over. We've been exposed to these ideas to the point where we think and we're terrified of that issue. In good chesidish homes, as it's been now and has been generations before, they didn't obsess with that. Two people really liked each other. They communicated with each other. They related to each other. They had shared values. They had a shared bitl, a certain type of humility, respecting each other. Then it always came together when it came to intimacy at work because intimacy requires all of that. Intimacy, if it's focused on pure technique, and do you do it this way, do you do it that way? I mean, are you making me happy? I'm making you happy. That is beautiful if it's in context. If it becomes the obsession, then most cases, it's never going to be satisfying. There's going to be tension and conflict. So my advice is find a good partner and make sure when you have conversations, talk about everything. This topic, if it's touched upon, there's idle ways and sneezdika ways and modest ways to talk about intimacy or talk about relationships. Remember, if you're talking to people who are naive, who are not yet entered, and I say naive, I meant in a good way, innocent, not yet entered into it, the talk is going to be more theoretical. But knowing the person, getting to know the person will help tremendously. And then when it comes to the bedroom, when it comes to intimacy, it works because you have a whole thing going for you. It's two people who like each other. They're friends. They're best friends. They communicate. So that, and, and they're not obsessed with one particular thing then it works out. And if there is an issue, you know how to talk about it. And something comes up, you know how to address it. That's my overall response. And yes, as you're taking chosen classes, and as you get engaged, definitely talk to a talk to someone who can speak about this with you, ask questions if you have, and hopefully a good chosen will direct and guide in more details and specifics. Another follow-up in this, Hirab Simon, thank you so much for addressing the issue of healthy and unhealthy intimacy. This is something that my ex-wife and I really struggled with. I think we really should have found a way to discuss this while dating, but at the time it didn't feel tzniyazdik, modest. The little we did discuss was evidently insufficient. Our expectations of what our intimate life would be were vastly different. We did try to discuss it with our respective mashpiyas, mashpiyim, but we both found it a difficult conversation to discuss openly and candidly with others outside the marriage. While we did finally figure out something that seemed to work for both of us, I think it was part of what ultimately contributed to our parting ways, or at least symbolic of some of our differences. I've since remarried, and during round two, I was able to discuss it more openly and candidly with my current wife, whom I'm Baruch Hashem happily married to for many years. While I no longer have a horse in this race, I think it's vital for the younger generation that the leaders take this issue head on and help the guys and girls before they get into the situation I was in. Thanks so much for all you do for our community. Okay, I don't have anything more to add than what I responded to the previous writer. In this regard, I'm sad to hear that things didn't work out. I, I would like to believe it wasn't just about intimacy and, that, and maybe other matters as well. It's after the fact. God bless you in your new marriage. God bless your ex-spouse in her new marriage. And everybody should be happy. But yes, there is a time to speak about things. If, for example, you do hit a hitch when once there's marriage in this area, do not ju- and you can't resolve it yourself, obviously go speak to a third party that can help. But I was just speaking the general approach that I think is the most healthiest approach to make sure that things work well. Number three regarding this topic. As I said, quite a few responses on this issue. Dabsimen. I'm writing to you, this to you because I honestly am embarrassed to bring it up with others. I'm a 770 bacher. I'm just getting into the shidduch scene. I've never been in a relationship before, but I do have to admit that I have 
seen schmutz online. While I've stopped Baruch Hashem for the last two plus years, I know that the scenes it portrays in that regular healthy, is that regular healthy intimacy with a spouse is passe, and is the forbidden, which is especially tantalizing. Honestly, having a class from a level-headed mashpia before dating about what is normal to expect in an intimate relationship with a spouse would be great, as it's certainly not what I saw years ago in the schmutz. But I don't know what it is. By the way, my parents seem to have an amazing relationship, but obviously I have never seen any aspect of their intimate life, nor would I want to ever ask either of them about it. Also, what to ask during Shaduchim to know what we were on this... Also, what to ask during Shaduchim to know that we're on the same page. Thanks so much for addressing this. Well, I'm glad you're out of that. And recognize that that is completely not what intimacy is about. That is a, a abuse and distortion in every possible way. And unfortunately creates then distorted ver- versions, visions and distorted attitudes and expectations. So let's make that very clear. That anything that comes from anything that's not appropriate is not at all something to be looked at or to be aspired to. You can have a complete, healthy, passionate, and powerful romantic intimacy with your spouse. The Torah advocates it, not just, not just suggests. And it's important to do so. As I said, it's a holistic part of the relationship, meaning it comes with a higher package. That's why there's the, the intimacy is there all the time, even when you're just talking to each other. You do it right, and it's better than anything that will be out there portrayed in that commercial, disgusting fashion, exploiting the issue and divorcing it from anything that's intimate, anything that's meaningful, anything that's sustainable, anything that spills over to healthy relationships and commitments, healthy commitments. So I say the same thing I say to you, but I said earlier, yes, if, you, if you're in Hassan stage, maybe speak to someone about it, but it comes down to ultimately that entire picture that I described. Okay, enough about this. Now, vaccination is still on some people's minds, and I understand why, so, I'll read one or two, well, let's see, what do I have here? I'll read one or two questions and try to respond. I think I covered it pretty extensively. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I heard your last few episodes in which you speak about vaccinations. It is pretty clear from what you say, that what, from what you are, clear from what you are saying, that you are of the opinion that not to vaccinate is not the approach of Teirach Siddis. Absolutely not to vaccinate, correct. However, I feel that unlike your usual style, that you have purposely skipped one important point, since just because it is the right thing to vaccinate certainly does not mean that kids should be deprived of chinuch because of it. Is it acceptable for yeshivas not to accept unvaccinated children? It says that nothing overrides children's learning, even the building of the Beis Amigdash. Can you please talk about this specific, this specific aspect, which too many Rabbanim Amrashbim are not willing to address? Okay, firstly, I did address it. I am not running any school, and I can't tell you what policy they should have. I totally agree that every child should be accepted in every school. But then there are legalities, and there's other parents, and there's a state, and there's a city, and there's all kinds of laws. I don't know all the details. I'm assuming it's not just some guy in a school decided this. It could very well be they're protecting themselves because they could also be, uh, uh, it, it can be litigated. And there's, uh, I've heard of schools being closed because of this issue. So I'm not even saying that they, they should be closed and the government is correct about this. But it's much more complicated by the issue itself. If we had total control over the issue and people would listen, so yes, then we can talk normally and we talk about vaccination 
and why you would want to be exempt from vaccinating and why we should allow your child in. It would be a normal conversation, but I think there are other factors involved. So I'm not here advocating that children should not be allowed into school. But you know something? Sometimes one has to look at why the parents are so insistent on not vaccinating. And maybe if they want their child in school, maybe vaccination should be explored. Why is it only the extreme one way and not the other way? Maybe, that, that maybe they should realize that vaccination should be an option, obviously in a proper way where it doesn't harm the child, etc., as we discussed. Another person writes, on the topics of doctors, medicine, vaccinations, etc., there were that, you had, well, that were in recent, uh, recent episodes, I would like to point out that in Lukutis Sichas, there's a section with over 60 pages of letters from the Rebbe Shlit on the topic. It's a Chelik Lamed Vov, starting on page 269, basically volume 36. I hope you'll share that as a place to look for those who want to look up the Rebbe's approach, as you suggested. Okay. And there's more, and maybe I'll just scatter them over the weeks. So most, as I said, are repeating ideas that I think I've covered, so I don't know if I have to cover it at all, but since it's coming in, I feel I should give some fair representation of the ideas. The Chassidus question for this week. How does Chassidus explain the month of Elul? Okay, so there are many, many Maimarim in the month of Elul. Some themes that are more people are more familiar with, some less. There's, of course, number one theme, maybe the number one that the Rebbe always referred to in the Moshla of the Alter Rebbe, the Melech Basoda. So that's the first thing. What does that mean? Radiate. The 13 attributes of compassion, as I mentioned at the outset of this program, radiate in the, sixth, in the days of El. Ask the Alter Rebbe. What is a Yomtev? A Yomtev is not just a day, it's a random day chosen. It's a day when there's a radiate, radiance and illumination and a manifestation of divine energy. So since there's a, 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 each Yomtev has its particular energy. So why in Elul is not Elul a day, a month full of Yom Tevim? It should be every day, it should be a Yantav, because Yud Gimel Midas Harachim, a radiator. A classic question from the Alter Rebbe, and he answers with the Moshe of Melech Basada. There are times when the Melech is Ba'ir, which means he's in his formal place, in his palace, in his inner sanctum, and there's all kinds of preparations you need to go, greet him. That would be like Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and so on. And then there's the Melech Basada on his way into the city, he stops in the field, and there he's accessible to every person, even as they are in the field, in their clothing, in their workday mode. And he shows them a beautiful face and answers their questions and grants their requests. That's El. So the Yid Gimel Midzad Achimim shine, but they shine in our, on our terms, in our mundane weekday level and dimension. So that's theme number one, that El is that type of connection before we go to Tishrei. Another theme exodus of El is Tshuva Tato, preparing to Tshuva Yilah. What's Tshuva Tato, the lower Tshuva? An example. Before you bring new furniture or new appliances into your home, you want to clean the dust. Let's say you build a home. But there's a lot of dust from the construction. You're not going to bring in new things into the home before you clean it. Tshuva Tato is cleaning up your act before you're able to experience the divine directly. You want to come over to God in a pure way, you want to say you're coming with clean clothing. More importantly, clean thought, speech, and action. So El is a process of that cleansing, so to speak, on the lower level, so you can reach the true law of Tishrei, the higher level. Another thing that's brought in the Maimarim, especially from the Friedrich Rebbe, Chedesh HaCheshben and Chedesh HaChana. It's the last month in the year, so it's a month of accounting. 
of everything we did in the past year, and it's a chedesh shachana, a month that prepares us to the point that actually says the last 12 days of Ella from Chayel to Rosh Hashanah, the last 12 days, correspond to each one, corresponds to a month in the past year that you're correcting and, and, and probing, evaluating how the month of Tishrei and Chayel, Cheshven, Yutesel. But the Rebbe adds, it's also 12 days that prepare for the 12 months of the next year. And then there are many other themes, including the five Rosh Hashanahs the Rebbe always brings regarding the acronyms of El which correspond to Teda, Avedig, Mils, Chasodim, Tshuva, and Geula. That these acronyms, since Elul is such a central month in, in concluding the year and accountability of the year and preparing for the new year, it covers the entire spectrum, which is Teda, Davening, Tfila, Mils, Chasodim, Tshuva in general, and Geula, Redemption. Some of you may be familiar with my book, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to Counting to the High Holidays, I'm sorry, Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. So there I elaborate a lot on these topics in relevant personal terms. And it's a good book to check out, it's in English, that makes the ideas of El and Tishle, the 60 days, accessible and relevant as a personal journey through this whole period in growing, spiritually growing personally, growing in your Avedis Hashem in connection with God and what your mission in this world is, including, of course, repairing the, anything that was, needs repair in our lives. Now we'll do the three essays. So every week we do three new essays. We're now top 40, top 50 essays. The first essay today will be called Baruch Hashem in Hebrew by Mendy Butman, age 18, Chadereh, Israel, a student in Yeshiva's Temchetmim in Megdal HaEmek. So Baruch Hashem. Basically he writes, begins and says, and when you look in general, look at the entire world, you see there's positives and negatives. Everything is broken down into positive things and negative things. Chsidis, teachings of Chsidis illuminate for a person, I'm translating, how we find our direction of what's right and wrong in this dark world. What's right, what's the positive, and what's the negative. And he goes on to use the Tanya to explain exactly that. Basically, a map, how to look at a map of our lives, a map of the world in this context. And then, of course, once you have that clarity, you can then know how to, how to travel, how to uh, navigate your life. Accentuate the positive and minimize the negative. Well done. It's a theme that's known, but nevertheless, originally and creatively presented. Essay number two is Gibur Zahut Nashit Lo'orach Sidut. Basically, women, in the context of chassidus, how chassidus looks and the approach to the personality, the role of women. In this 21st century, the role of women has become a, quite a prominent issue, and there are so many different opinions, and therefore creating so much confusion about the matter. And the essay goes on to first discuss and how do we address the confusion, all the different approaches. Second is how we recognize the true qualities and potential of a woman, understanding her purpose, and then a conclusion, a very solid, broken-down bullet point conclusion of the, of the ideas addressed with some practical advice as well. Very good essay as well. And then finally, the third essay is in English, Social Anxiety, Menchik Galuv, 
Oh, I forgot to mention the name of the second essayist. Yehudit Kleinman, age 18, Migdala Imik Israel, a student in Haken Lemarashat HaKotel, Seminar Chaim Mushka, and works in the Shedut HaKeren Lemarashat HaKotel. This third essay, Social Anxiety, is Menshik Galuv, age 22, Long Beach, California. Uh, T.A. Preschool. I guess Torah Academy Preschool. So this addresses, as the title suggests, this essay will be comparing how Chassidus deals with something like social anxiety disorder and how modern therapists deal with it. The primary source is Tanya chapter 26. And goes on to do exactly that, making that comparison. Beautifully done. And uh, coming away with the Tanya's Chiddush and the Tanya's approach of how to deal with anxiety in general, including social anxiety. Another well-done essay. All these essays are posted at chassidusapply.com. Or you can get them and or you can receive them in your inbox by subscribing to our uh, weekly uh, newsletter and our weekly emailing offerings. Again, all the material, all the archives are all available at chassidusapply.com. Everyone should have a very blessed end of the month of Menachem Ov. Now we're in the second half, which is ready after Hamishab is us above, where the moon is, is growing and growing, and the light of it, the moon grows, and we increase in Teda accordingly, leading into the month that we'll be benching next Shabbos, Shabbos Mubarakim El. That should be a blessed month and a blessed Tamid to everyone. Thank you so much. This has been Chassidus Applied, episode two, my life, Chassidus Applied, episode 273. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This program was, due to technicalities, broadcast afterwards, but now it's part of the series. Going forward, hopefully, Mr. Hashem will always be 8 to 9 p.m. on a Sunday. Thank you so much.